You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. coordinator at Enoch Pratt Free Library and thank you for joining us for a special Writers Live on a very blustery November night. Tonight we're having a critical conversation about education. We have Colin Buzzy Hedelman who is an acclaimed expert and author on special education and struggling learners. He has represented pro bono over 200 students and been instrumental in policy reforms at the local, state, and national level. In 2016 to 2018, he was a member of the Maryland Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, charged by the governor and state legislature with recommending comprehensive statewide K through 12 school reform. He'll be in conversation with Erica Green, a correspondent in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times covering education and education policy. They'll be discussing Buzzy's new book, Mislabeled as Disabled, the Educational Abuse of Struggling Learners and How We Can Fight It. Hedelman and Green will be talking about the system and what can be done to change it. Kirkus Reviews called the book an outside-the-box approach to meeting students' needs gets a worthy and forceful advocate. So please give a warm welcome to Buzzy Hedelman and Erica Green. Thank you all for um, coming out tonight to watch uh, Buzzy and I do what we did for seven years at the Baltimore Sun, which is argue. Uh, and um, I was really honored when he asked me to engage in, in this conversation because uh, this book really seems to me to be a culmination of all the things you have been screaming from the rooftops for years. Um, and so I wanted to kick off um, the conversation by asking kind of what is your main takeaway? What do you want? I mean, you, you cover a lot in the book, which is usually, which is... When you're, discussing, when you're discussing special education. But this is bigger than special education, so what are you trying to tell us here? First, I, is this working here? Yes. I thought maybe the school system is in charge of the microphones. Um, <laughs> First, I want to thank the Pratt. We've got a lot of problems in Baltimore City, but the Pratt Library is not one of them, and we thank you for all the great work you're doing. And again, thank each of you for coming, and thank you particularly to Erica, though after she asked me a few questions, I may not appreciate being up here with her. But she is, um, she, we are so lucky um, being the ace education reporter for the, in my opinion, the greatest um, journalist newspaper in the country is a great accomplishment. Um, and she is in a position not just to observe, but within editorial boundaries to help to be a part of this national discussion about public education. We all want to change public education, 
but we can't seem to come to any agreement about how to do it i think that in direct answer to erica's question and i use the word um educational abuse very deliberately i was told not to use it because it's a strong term but you don't need intent to harm for child abuse it's enough that there is gross negligence and in my view despite all the obstacles despite all the problems despite all the politics despite all the poverty we know how to make major gains in student achievement particularly among children who are poor and minority but we don't do it um the issue of students who are mislabeled is as disabled is in some respects the tip of the iceberg but let me just take a minute or two and talk about them and how that leads into the larger issue students with disabilities who are in special education are really in two major categories first are those students who are severely disabled with significant cognitive disabilities they cannot they can achieve higher than they do but they should not be expected to achieve regular high state standards the much larger group of students in special education as many as 80 to 85 percent of all students in special education have the cognitive ability if they receive the right instruction and other supports to meet or come very close to meeting regular academic standards that division in the population is not well understood and we can talk about some of the reasons for that but that leads into the fact that even these students in special education are themselves the tip of a larger iceberg of all students in this country take maryland 60 percent of all students in maryland do not come close to achieving proficiency standards in reading so it's not a problem that's isolated to just poor and minority kids struggling learners come in all shapes and sizes and while no one has a surefire answer there is one of all the education reforms we could have you know a, a long series of meetings about all the different things that different theories that people have about how to reform public education the clearest evidence about what can do the most good right now is early identification and intervention when we first discover as early as pre-k or k that children are not achieving appropriately developmentally appropriate benchmarks if we would intervene early and intensively those students would have a very good chance of achieving proficiency and certainly the great great majority of them 
would not be in special education. The problem, the biggest problem with special education is general education because it does not meet the needs of children uh, as it should, when it should. So let me um, get ready for cross-examination. So, <laughs> so yeah, what strikes me about your, um, your book is it, it, it really is an indictment of, of and public and public education, and I wonder if if that's fair, right? Um, is it that general education is lacking, or really that instruction? Is it really that general education is lacking, or is it more that general education should be modeled after special education? Well, in in the targeted every child. Yeah. <laughs> the law is backwards, uh, in a sense. The only students who are guaranteed, putting aside the constitutional mandate for sufficient funding, the only kids that are guaranteed education to meet their needs are those children who are identified as disabled. But why shouldn't that apply to all students? So whether you're labeled general education, special education, the instruction you get and the other supports should meet your needs, and that is what is implicit in the constitutional mandate. It doesn't say all children should have a civil right to an adequate education if they're disabled. They should have a, they have a constitutional right to an adequate education to meet their needs so they can make their way uh, in uh, higher education or careers and is it an unfair indictment one of the things that I really go to great pains to do is to point out that teachers are my heroes this is not an indictment of teachers it is an indictment of the educational establishment represented by schools of education and state departments and that sort of thing. Teachers are as victimized by the system as children because if you look at special education teachers and the fact that it's very hard to get them, there are great shortages, and that's because, not because of salary, it's because of lack of job satisfaction, because they are asked to do too much with too little, and they're not given the opportunity to meet these kids particularly if they're in special education, because by the time they get the, you know, the wait-to-fail syndrome, they're so far behind that it's virtually impossible to catch them up. And as a matter of fact, as the data clearly shows, once these kids, these struggling learners, get in special education, they do worse than they would have done if they had stayed in general education. So, I mean, let's go on the assumption that, and it sounds like you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the children are not cognitively impaired. But does that in fact mean that they don't have the disability that was required of you to have the extra supports that is covered by IDEA? No, they don't have a disability. They don't have a medical or clinical disability. 
They simply are struggling learners for a variety of reasons. Take students, take students with, quote, dyslexia, whatever that exactly means. I mean, many of those children have cop, you know, high cognitive ability, but their needs are simply not addressed. And of course, the system works um, many times more against poor and minority children. If, and this gets into the big issue of low expectations, which is part of the reason why the needs, particularly of poor and minority children, aren't met. It is because so many people think that because of their poverty, that they can't succeed. If you're upper income and you're struggling to learn, well, you've got dyslexia, and if your parents can afford it, you get a private tutor and a private evaluation. If you're uh, poor and minority and you're struggling, many people think that it's because of your family environment. I don't want to downplay the importance of family. Nothing matters more than family. Going back to the Coleman Report here in Baltimore in 1966. But demography is not destiny. These children can learn if we give them the right instruction yeah. as early as possible. Yeah. And so who, I mean, I, I saw you took great things to make sure that you were not vilifying teachers. Um, but when we talk about the system, when I hear that as a reporter, I think of this black hole, and I think of it as, as some euphemism for a lack of accountability. Who is, who is the system? Who, who is it? Who do you, whose door do you go to and say, hey, this needs to change? It's a great question, that's not surprising. Um, the, the educational system, who I portray as the guiltiest of the culprits, um, represent, with the exception of Gary Thrift's program at Notre Dame, um, schools of education, and everyone agrees that they don't do the job, but also uh, the Federal Department of Education, even before Betsy DeVos. Well, I, you know, we can't even blame all this on Donald Trump, so I agree with that. Um, and um, uh, I, I, although I'm a general fan of teachers' unions, they have their part to play in this, as do associations of principals and supervisors and, and, and so forth. It is a matter of accountability at every level. And if we get a chance to talk about the Kerwin Commission, as much as I am an advocate for more money, I am as staunch an advocate for stronger accountability. And unless we get that kind of accountability, federal, state, and local, then the money is not going to be spent for the purposes for which it's intended, and the kids are not going to benefit as they should. A big, big question is where does where does the buck stop on that, and yeah. what is the division of uh, responsibility for accountability? And I'm, you know, glad whenever you'd like to 
say a few words about that? Well, I mean, if we're talking about instruction, we have to look to who, is, who are instructional leaders in districts and buildings, I think. I mean, right? I mean, that's right. What, right. So, so um, you know, if you, folks who are writing curriculum, the State Board of Education who, you know, has adopted um, standards, so, I mean, and they've changed how many times in the last decade, right? It's like, I, th I think in Maryland, these folks have a bit of whiplash. Yeah. Um, but it seems that that is who you would hold accountable, yet it seems that you, you kind of don't want to do that. <laughs> yes and no. Okay. Um, let's start with something that is so counterintuitive uh, that you're going to think I'm. Um, you know, uh, stargazing or daydreaming. We will never achieve adequate instruction for students in this country, particularly um, poor and minority students, unless the federal government plays a very large role. And that role is to set high standards, because after all, science and geography aren't different in, from one state to another. Set, support research and development so that there is a stronger, more robust, more scientifically supportable body of evidence about what programs work <laughs> and what don't work. And most of all, we will never achieve adequacy unless the federal government guarantees it. Not to climb too high on my soapbox, but there is nothing that has ever happened in this country that has provided for the civil rights of poor and minority and disadvantaged people unless it came primarily via federal court decisions or congressional action. Think of civil rights on race, gender. Think of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Think of occupational safety and so forth. It just doesn't happen for lots of reasons that are built into our uh, system. So um, it's, but that said, that said, um, that still leaves room for states and localities to say how we're going to get it done. In other words, the feds provide a guarantee of wealth equalized funding across the states. The feds provide some standards for research. And the states and the localities can say, okay, here's how we're going to meet those standards. And as long as they are evidence-based, that's okay. Now, what's the division between the state and, and, and local um, in terms of what instructional best practices they want to utilize, um, that should be balanced too. Um, unfortunately, state departments of education, including the Maryland State Department of Education, have been extremely lax and negligent in setting the high standards and demanding accountability. I would, I mean, I, one thing that has been incredibly stunning to me um, and to learn 
know that I'm on the um, federal policy beat, <laughs> uh, is just how little control the federal government has over anything in the K-12 space. Um, they have a lot of power in higher education through regulation, um, but I mean, it is, it is very limited. And that's why we saw um, limited programs like Race to the Top that required state buy-in, right? But if you didn't sign up, you didn't get the cash, and you went about your business. Um, so that, that has been tried, but now we're seeing, a, a, we saw a backlash against that model, um, which is how we got EPA, which is now the, the law of the land, um, and it's kind of a free-for-all when states get to do um, what they like and to set their curriculum the way they like, measure their achievement the way they like, count or not count, uh, certain populations of students and their achievement data. Um, and there's this pushback toward autonomy. Um, and so, you know, I say that to say that there aren't very many leaders in Washington to make this happen. Uh, with all of that said, it's up to state governments. And in Maryland, it seems like there's a bit of a tug of war over funding and resources and what the next what decade will look like in, in the state. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, it shouldn't be because when you're talking about civil rights and your education is a civil right and the states don't provide it, then it's up to the federal government to take some action and whether that's a court decision eventually, and you know there are pending cases in Detroit yeah. Yeah. and Berkeley yeah. that raise the constitutional right under the federal constitution to be able to learn to read. Mm -hmm. um, that um, is going to, the, the, the levers exist at the federal and state levels, but they're not used because of the politics of education. And unfortunately, Democrats sometimes are in the same boat as Republicans in not wanting to take on the, 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 uh, the myth of local control of public education. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting, you mentioned the word autonomy. You know, I write that in Medicine, if you don't use research-based evidence, medicines, what's it called? Malpractice. If you don't do that in education, if educators don't use what research points to, what's it called? Professional autonomy. <laughs> so that's, that's deeply ingrained, unfortunately, in our system, and it will take first Kerwin isn't going to happen in Maryland, come close to happening, unless we get a progressive governor. And the proper role for uh, the national role in education won't happen unless we have a shift nationally. Um, President, first of all, President Lyndon Johnson tried. And as you know, he instituted Title I. He, and, and, but, and he put a lot of money in to Title I, 
and we liberals have to accept the blame for the fact that we were happy to take the money, but there was no accountability for it. And that eventually led to no child left behind and so forth. So we have to have a national government and a state government that are willing to take on the entrenched interests and see that there are the twin pillars of adequacy and accountability. Well, I would argue that we have a Secretary of Education who thinks that that's exactly what she's doing. I mean, really. Well, we're going to talk about charters and privatization. I mean, her thing is privatization. And it is, you know, she's being true to her principles that I think are destructive of public education. And let me draw a clear distinction. I support charter schools, unlike many progressives. Which are not private schools. Which are not private schools, right. And I think there's room for charters. They should be held to the same accountability standards. Let a thousand flowers bloom. If they work, support them. If they don't, weed them out. But that's different than two things. One, that's different than vouchers and tax subsidies for private schools until we've adequately funded public schools. And it's also different than what most charter advocates and conservatives say is that charters are the panacea. They're good when they're done right, but they're no panacea because if they ever tried to take them to scale, on a national scale, they'd run into the same problems that public education runs into when you have a system that is so large and requires such a large bureaucracy. Now let's talk about the people with power in Washington, and that's Congress. As we all know, they fund IDEA, I think at last count it was 14%. They promised 40, 4.0. And they all do admit that they are quite ashamed of that, that nothing ever changes. What do you think would happen if, by some grace of God, a piece of legislation got through Congress and they funded IDEA at 40%? And there was a huge infusion of funding into special education in this country. I would be very happy and glad to go to church with you and pray for that. But if I had my, but my first prayer would be for the money to be adequate in general education. And if we took the mislabeled as disabled out of special education, there would be the money and the focus on improving the services for those who are severely cognitively disabled. So, you know, Congress needs to fund to ensure adequate funding for general education and special education. And that doesn't mean Congress has to pay, all the money has to be raised at the federal level. You have wealth equalization, so in the same way that the state funds local districts based on their wealth, the federal government would provide funding to states and locals provided that they put up their wealth equalized share of it. 
So I know that you have a particular focus on instruction, and I just uh, returned from an assignment in Flint, Michigan. Everybody should run out and get that if you have it. It's a magnificent piece of front page journalism. Okay, that's not <laughs> No, I, I, you know, I, I went out to assess um, what's happened five years after the lead crisis, um, the state-created lead crisis, um, and the, the school district is completely overwhelmed with requests and need for special education services. It's a tension there. Um, and, you know, I mean, the school district has lost a 1,000 kids in five years, their count this year, they've lost a thousand in a year. Um, their special education rates, students that they have deemed qualified, has doubled since the crisis began. Um, nearly 30,000 children in Flint were exposed to poison water. Um, and I have a hard time thinking that good instruction alone would help the children that I, I saw and that I sat down with. Well, I couldn't admire more the reporting and it, you know, it shines a spotlight on the, the major deficiencies of special education. My impression from reading the story is that you can't tease out in Flint or other places, how much of the special education is owing to the serious damage to the children caused by the lead in the water, and how much is the serious damage caused because they didn't get right instruction in the first place. And as you know, the Matthew effect and so forth, when you fall behind early, you keep falling farther and farther behind, you become discouraged, you stop trying, and so, um, I think that um, it's good that they are making a special effort in Flint as a result of a, a delayed crisis and visibility. Um, again, one, my guess is that you have to break down the large number of kids by what disabilities, but I would think that a very large percentage, uncomfortable percentage of them are simply kids who are so far behind that they're being placed, quote, dumped into special education because of the extra resources that are now being put there and the attention that's being paid to it. They have no resources. <laughs> they're failing miserably at serving a lot of these kids. Well, they did put in, as I read, this new body that's supposed to process the kids and diagnose yeah, the screen, them. Yeah, the screening. The screening center. So at least they're doing that way. They are screening them for disabilities, but then the kids leave, leave the screening room and go to school and nothing happens. So that's the second phase. So I'll be back in five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just, it, it's just fresh. And, and I watched a young man who, who could not, I mean, he, he, he just kept saying to me, I knew my time tables. I knew them. Miss White taught me. And, and I just can't remember them anymore. And I don't know if they did a bad job.
or if there's something really wrong there. I don't know how we discern that. Well, you know, children have attention, memory problems, and so forth. And again, not to beat the dead horse, but most of that can be addressed. You don't have to be in special education. So what does it, what will it take? What does this, what does this look like? Tomorrow, if you could create, just let's, let's have a buzzy air at the school. And we have, I don't know, let's say, let's say 800 students, which is a big school. And they walked in, they were, let's say, half of them were struggling learners and half were on proficient, let's call it proficient. What would happen when they walked into our school? First, I'd make it the Erica Buzzy School, but um, <laughs> the, um, they would walk in, obviously, a nice environment, clean, safe environment. And then when they would go into the classroom, and we'll start with the kindergarten child, and of course the most important thing you can learn, you can't succeed in any subject unless you learn how to read. So it is mainly, and you can't even learn math unless you can read and deal with um, word problems and, and so forth. So you would walk into your homeroom, which would have no more than, let's say, 25 students in kindergarten, and I think we, I think that's the legal limit in Maryland with me. Anyway, and there would be um, a well-trained teacher, and you would have, first you would have, let's say you would have uh, 150 minutes for um, English language arts, reading, writing, and you would have, the whole class would have what is known as tier one instruction. That is the basic curriculum and instructional methods for everyone. And within that, you would have a period in which kids would be um, broken down into groups by skill levels. And they would get a little bit of instruction, but how much of that can one teacher do for 25 kids, even though um, I don't know, what is it, 30 minutes is set aside for group and small group instruction. But those kids then, those 50% of the kids who are not getting it, who aren't meeting the assessments, would get what is known as tier two instruction, which is oversimplified. They would be pulled out for 20 to 30 minutes in groups of no more than five. So who would be doing it? Who would be doing the pull-out? Because You would have to have additional teachers to do okay. that, and that's what you know the Kerwin Commission is recommending. So we're already doubling the number of staff in our school. Well, it's not doubling. And well, you want it for every class, though, right? But you only want it for half the kids. So, but you do have smaller group sizes. You're right that, you know, I said I'm not very good at math, but um, what, one of the things, I'm honored that Bob Slavin here at Hopkins wrote the foreword to my book, and he is the nation's preeminent expert on evidence-based tutoring. One of the things he's now doing with some Kerwin demonstration money, he believes that the research is showing that you can 
you don't need certified teachers to be effective tutors if that is their specialty and they're well trained so that, and I think the ABLE Foundation is helping to fund one of those pilots. Uh, Bob's got his own program now called the Lightning Squad that's going into the schools. And he believes there's a good case that can be made that um, tutors can be paid much less than teachers and still be well trained to do what they're doing. But I don't want to suggest that by any means it's not going to cost more money. I also would say, and this is built into the current commission recommendations, is that if we do early intervention right, we're going to save tons of money in special education, in retentions, not to say, you know, not to mention the prisons. So it's an investment that eventually we have to make if we, if we want to really uh, meet the needs of our kids. I will say that after Flint, all of the, there was a lot of private money that came in, poured in from all over, but particularly within the community. And it was um, the, the most investment was made in early childhood education. I mean, what has actually been reborn in the city um, are, are preschools, um, even when serving up to uh, age five, um, starting at nine months. And um, I spoke with the doctor, the pediatrician who blew the whistle on Flint, who held, who went rogue and held a press conference and said that I have seen huge percentages of my babies coming in with huge lead, or very, very, very high lead levels, and that then prompted um, the government to acknowledge that their, their water was untreated and contaminated. Um, and she, I spoke to her at the end of the trip, and I was so, it was a really rough trip, let's just say that. Mm -hmm. And I was so ready to get out of fun. Um, I really was, it was, it was really tough. Um, and so she gets on the phone, and she's the most optimistic. And I was just thrown for a complete loop. I mean, she was, she was like, I think we're gonna be fine, and I was like, fine. <laughs> I was like, aren't you? this all out, right? Um, and she says she was optimistic because they, these early childhood centers kind of hit the reset button for that city. And she encouraged me because she said, she said she could hear my voice and I was just despondent to go visit one. So I pushed my flight and went to one of the preschools the next morning and thank goodness for my mental state and also for the sake of the story. Um, because those those babies and the, the children in this in, it's called Educare Plan. It's a part of the national network. And I started to cry. And the principal was like, "What's wrong?" And I just looked at them like, "They're fine. They're just so normal. They're so happy. They're just walking around." And I mean, and these are the children who were poisoned in utero, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So these wow. are zero to five, and it happened five wow. years ago. So. Um, so, see, coming around, I just kind of challenged a little bit. But yeah, but, but, but in a, I mean, this is kind of the, the kind of snowboard for me to kind of look into 
what can be done. But Baltimore obviously struggles with the same issues, and I do wonder. Walk into any school in Baltimore, yeah. in the worst neighborhood, yeah. and look at the four and five year olds coming in. They are bright, yeah. cheerful. Yeah. They, they want to learn. We all want them to learn, which brings us back to why we don't do more uh, yeah. to do it. Right. And uh, I don't think we've solved all that. But just one last thing <laughs> to, to, to um, enhance my reputation for saying controversial things. Um, early childhood is overrated as a policy strategy in this sense. <laughs> it's what's the, what's the phrase? It's it's um, it's necessary but not sufficient. We had, uh, you know, so many people testified before the Kerwin Commission, and even the most arch conservative would come up and say, "Oh, I'm I'm for early childhood." But then, if you said, "Well, what happens after early childhood?" Well, I don't know, you're, you're wasting money. And so the notion, and I love and admire all the early childhood advocates, it just, it is not, it's, it's, it's not an inoculation against future school failure. And the same intensity has to be applied to kids after they leave kindergarten. And Unfortunately, that so many people seem to say I'm for early childhood, so I'm for public education, yeah. and it doesn't fit. Some other things about that. So is it in, in, um, where we'd like to open it up for questions? Yeah. You guys have to have questions, <laughs> especially the teachers in the audience. That was the optimism. 
Thank you all for doing this, first of all, Buzzy. It's nice to see you again. <laughs> um, so I'm actually a parent of a student who has dyslexia, dyscalculia, and dysgraphia. So when you guys were talking about just what the interventions look like in school, at what point are schools, not just my school, but just schools in general, the accountability piece when students are not progressing and there's no it's okay. <laughs> no, the student, students are not progressing and the interventions are just not working. At some point as a school, who, is, who ultimately has the responsibility? Whether it's the IEP chair, whether it's the special educator, whether it's the liaison IEP person from the Board of Ed, who ultimately has the responsibility to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, this is just not working, what we're doing is not working. Well, let's start with the principal, and the principal should know, and the superintendent, CEO should require, first, are they really using evidence-based interventions with sufficient frequency and intensity? Everything now today advertises itself as a research-based program, but that doesn't mean that it is necessarily going to work if you don't have the right teacher, if you don't have small pupil teacher ratios, if you don't have sufficient time. So I bet my life that in, in your school they're not doing that. They say they're doing it, and I'm sure it's driven Erica crazy like it has me over the years. If you ask so many people in the schools and in North Avenue, we're doing that. We're doing that. And they may mean, well, we're trying, and we're, but they're not doing that in terms of um, the way it needs to be done. And in fairness to them, um, you know, how much can they blame on lack of resources? And how much can they, should they blame themselves for lack of managing the resources that they have? better than using evidence-based best practices. It's both. It's both. And I think um, we should be much tougher resources. But remember Andres Alonso. We take the kids the way, the way <laughs> we both have scars. But uh, we take the kids the way we get them. And there's a no excuses culture. And um, and so we should be doing better, notwithstanding the lack of resources and all the obstacles. But it's important to sort that out, and then the superintendent needs to be held accountable by the school board, and the state school board needs to hold the local school board accountable, which it doesn't because of the politics of local control. And eventually, there must be federal standards to hold the states accountable. If you want the money and we're giving you the research, then use it the right way or we're going to take um, some kind of sanctions which don't include taking the money away from the kids. But that sounds so hard to a parent. Like, you just basically told the president, 
Dyslexia of Maryland, and they're a great advocacy group. And you all have the capacity to go in to that principle and say that you're not using the evidence-based best practices for how to teach struggling learners, whether they have, quote, dyslexia or they don't. And that process needs to be carried out at all levels. And, you know, fortunately, you guys are working at the state level as well as the local level and that's our best shot in the interim and that can point the way. One of the things that's so sad to me is that, and the problems that the Kerwin Commission is encountering, if there's any state that should lead the way, it's Maryland. We're a blue state politically. By many measures, we're the wealthiest state in the country and we're lagging. We should we should do better. And I appreciate what Decoding Dyslexia of Maryland is doing. I wanted to say, um, when I graduated from high school, I was reading on the first grade level. Um, and um, so I walk across the stage, I get a diploma, and I'm out in the world. Um, it, it's not just happening here in Baltimore. We're talking Emerald County and all these other counties. Of course, you just mentioned the thing is happening in Detroit and places like that. Um, who is responsible for that? I mean, honestly. Um, and what, what, I, what I, I did when my grandmother said, she, I was three years old and I couldn't read at that time. I mean, I wasn't three years old. I was in third grade and I couldn't read. And she looked at me and she said, you can do anything. So I believe my grandmother, um, and that's why I'm here today, um, but uh, it, it just didn't work for me, and, and no one really took care of that for me. And it's not just a parent um, of fighting, because we fight very hard, and, and Buzzy, you've been with me through that. But it's, 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 it's the system in whereby they just pass you along, and they don't help you. My book, book begins with the story of Kenny. Kenny is one of several hundred students I've represented. He's not completely atypical, but I met Kenny, um, I think he was in the 10th grade, at, uh, I'll name the school, um, at Carver, which has some admission standards. He was in the 10th grade, and he was reading at a first grade level. He didn't have behavior problems. He went to school. Listen to this. In the first grade, he struggled right off the bat. In the first grade, he was given what are known as accommodations. 
he was given what's known as the read aloud or the verbatim reading accommodation, which means that the teachers can read to him. Now, that's unconscionable. Who's to say that he couldn't learn to read? You know, he's being put on crutches, so he'll never learn to read independently. And so the system perpetuates itself in that way, and it's, it's, it's prevalent. I mean, nothing is more tragic than when I get these kids, and they've been given this accommodation in the first grade. That's a lack of accountability. And that is not a money issue. That's an attempt unconsciously by the system to make itself look better than it is. By that bumps the scores, the test scores, when they give those kids that accommodation. Yeah, I wasn't, we'll do, a, I wasn't a problem in school. I was a good kid. So. Yeah, we'll do two more questions, and um, the sir in the back corner has had his hand up for a while. Uh, um, I'm a retired uh, school administrator, and I'm also a parent of a child who's been labeled as dyslexic, and our daughter is a struggling reader. School system has done, she does have an IEP, has done a good job accommodating, but they have done nothing to remediate. Uh, we've spent a small fortune on private assessments, attorneys, and we're still at square one. My wife and I don't know what to do, and we both used to work for this school system. I was an administrator of the school system. And I've never seen people work so hard to justify not. <laughs> to justify not doing the right thing for my daughter. And I know you said about people with money and privilege can get things done, but we're out 40000 already. I've spent money on Linda Boot Bell, Burton Gillingham, an attorney. I think the only thing I have now to do is to send my kid to a private school and spend forty grand, or the lawyer wants forty grand for due process case where he winks, winks, it, it'll happen. Where if you know due process in the state of Maryland, if you bring the, a due process case, that's pretty much your case to lose the way the system currently works. So I'm at an area right now where I'm, I'm willing to put a due process case forth myself and even open it to the public, which you can do. No one's ever really done that in Maryland. And I would invite a journalist to come on in and see what parents go through. Because my daughter is an amazing kid and has been such a struggle. And my wife's co-workers are here from another county. I'm probably embarrassing my wife. I apologize. But, but I agree with your book, and I very much enjoy your book. The civil rights movement, the federal power of the federal government is going to be really the only thing that's going to drive a system, the power of the federal government to come in and sue a state, to say to a state, you're not doing what's right for children, and put forth the money for at an early age to do something. Because our daughter has struggled since kindergarten. And all we got was lip service, and all we get now is lip service and eye rolls and IEP meetings. And it's just it's just really frustrating. Yeah. So. Uh, don't tell my wife, because she thinks I should cut back. But my email is kheddleman at gmail.com. <laughs> and I don't get paid. And I would be glad to sit down with you and look at the last IEPs and evaluations and give you my free advice, which I hope is worth more than you're paying for. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you after. I would, I would, I would come to you for the process here. Thank you.
Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, um, a couple comments first, and then a question. Uh, in Maryland, we're trying to emulate the state of Massachusetts. That's our target, if you will. Um, and in Massachusetts, 94% of the teachers, excuse me, 96% of the teachers they employ in their schools are trained by the schools in Massachusetts. So there's a degree of quality control in that state. In Maryland, 30 to 35% of the teachers each year that are hired are trained in Maryland. The rest of them come from outside of Maryland. This year, thus far, in Baltimore City, and this gets to the issue of certification, one-third of the teachers employed in Baltimore City are not qualified, they're not certified. One-fourth of the new hires in Baltimore County are not qualified. One-fourth of the new hires in Anne Arundel County are not qualified. Now, many people uh, were celebrating the demise of No Child Left Behind, but one of the things that No Child Left Behind did was it cast a spotlight on teachers who were not qualified and parents had a right to know. Do you think with all of the new regulations that the State Department and the Maryland State Board of Education are generating, that there should be this, if you will, no child left behind transparency? And to what extent are we solving the problem in Maryland when we're focusing all of our energy on 30% of the teachers we're training when 70% are coming from outside? Well, I, I will defer to you, Gary, in terms of your knowledge of certification, licensure, teacher training. And I don't know, and, and Dr. Gary Thrift, one of the great Baltimore educators who now runs the School of Education at Notre Dame, um, was before the current commission yesterday, and there's a very tough debate, right, between the commission recommendations and what the schools of education are, are questioning, to put it mildly. I don't know, you know, I tried to find common ground and tried to get you, you guys together, but the commission is trying to address the issue of recruitment and retention by not only large increases in pay, but higher standards and trying to do what it thinks is right to raise the standards for those teachers who come in. As you know as well as anyone, in these other high-performing countries, teachers are one of the highest-paid professions. They're respected and they're well-paid. In this country, if you look at the SAT scores on people who go into teaching, it's the exact opposite of what it is in these um, high-performing countries. So, um, thank you for your own advocacy, and I hope you know you guys and the commission, and eventually the general assembly, can work this out so you're you know on the same page. Well, and I think that's where the crux of the problem lies: that we're not doing enough internally to promote, prepare, recruit.
recruit teachers from the state of Maryland, we need to solve that problem so we're not looking outside the state to hire individuals over whom we have no quality control. Two more. One last. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> 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 Captain Anderson. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm Adam Sutton. I'm a Baltimore County teacher, actually. Um, and I guess, you know, in light of the, the touching story, um, I wonder if we're just kind of like looking at it all wrong. Um, you know, the conversation has been dominated a lot of talk about um, standards and assessments and achievement and accountability. And the reason that nobody at the school sees your kid is because all we're talking about is like data metrics. And the reason nobody sees that kid is because when we're in school, it's kids' data point. I mean, what, like, I mean, is it is all the talk about data and assessment and numbers like totally misguided? And the fact that you know, we schools are not places of humanity. Like, I mean, they don't see kids. We don't see. You know, little Johnny and like what his problems are. We're like, little Johnny's got a test score problem. That's what little Johnny is. Um, and I, so I just wonder if the conversation is totally messed up. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> you have the book. No, you have the knowledge. I mean, I have to be careful with journalists. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, the conversation it has has shifted, um, and some will, some will attribute that to No Child Left Behind. Um, and what I will say, though, is, especially, again, this Washington thing, I, it is good for something. Um, but I, what I have noticed is, is a lot of folks who thought that No Child Left Behind made children data points um, are very scared for those same children now under the new federal law ESSA where states do have more. I mean, the state could say, we're not going to do this test score thing anymore. But one, one thing about one of the benefits of No Child Left Behind is that every child has to be accounted for. So how that, you know, how that works itself in schools, I think, has a lot to do with your principal um, and the kind of culture that exists in the school. Um, and I say that, yes, from being a reporter, but also as a mother now, with a kid in a Baltimore County school. Um, and you know, the, or, at orientation, we, it was like, new parent night. And I was like, yes, we're in kindergarten. And we sat there, and like slides came up on the screen. And it was like, these test scores are horrible. And we were like, we just got here. And I was like, one thing we're going to have to do is have a conversation about what this data means to this principle, right? Um, and we did have that conversation. And what it meant to her was that they were, they were losing kids. And she basically had to communicate that, yeah, some of these kids are going to be data points for a while because I find this unacceptable. And I, I accepted that as a parent. Um, but she has a desire to change that culture once she sees some results. So, I mean, it's, it's tough. In the city, I mean, under, I, can't, I started covering the Baltimore City School System under Andres Alonso, who cared about only data. 
and unapologetically so. And it crushed the city. It crushed it morale. It, we saw a huge exodus, especially of veteran teachers. Um, those who like knew how to talk, knew how to teach reading before like the Common Core and all the fancy stuff came along. <laughs> um, so I mean, it, it's it's tough because you have to account for things in some way um, without making them reducing them to nothing. Uh, I agree with most of what Erica said. Schools need to look at the whole child uh, to be culturally, developmentally sensitive, but you also need data to hold schools accountable. And until No Child Left Behind, there was no accountability at all. Nothing happened. So once again, we have this polarization. It's not, it's not either or meeting the needs of the whole child versus data that shows whether the child is learning and what kind of instruction that particular child um, needs. So I know of your own good work as a teacher and advocacy, and I appreciate that, but we've got to do these things together and not uh, position a, a reasonable amount of good testing as the enemy of progress for kids. If I can just say, but you know, data is important as school teachers in County, but I'll ask you to look when you do go to IEP meetings, things of that nature, when you look, and I say to parents out there, you know, they, if people say that your kid's doing great and they play the apple and oranges games, so they'll give your kid the informal programs one time, and then they'll give them another test the next time, all up in the same year and say, your kid's making great progress. And as a parent, if you don't know better, you'll say, that's wonderful. But then when, when the triannual comes up, okay, and you see that your kid hasn't made progress in three years, if, you, if they even give that subtest, if you know to look at that, for example, um, trust me, there, there's a lot of things that go on. I don't know if you're in special ed, but you'll, you'll eventually see the games that have been played and I don't know if they still do, but 20 years ago when I was in special ed, that was one of the things, because it's, uh, you take a parent, and for example, this woman here, the things she's saying, that's, that's horrendous that she's asking, has to, has to ask, where do I go? Where do I go for help for my child? Who do I see? That's, that's ridiculous. This should be very clear, like you said, tier one intervention, tier two intervention. This, this shouldn't be. A parent shouldn't have to be here tonight wondering, what do I do for my child? Doesn't make sense. And, and that's something that I blame, you know, like, like I said, the schools of education, nothing in the school of education prepared me for what I dealt with as a teacher or as an administrator. And no offense, every college in Notre Dame, I went there, Sister Sharon Slayer's where I got my MBT, have a great bond with the school, but it, it, didn't, it didn't give me the tools. And it's, and it's been learning, you know, along the way. So. And a good example of that is, is that you spoke to the dyslexia, dyscraphia, dyscalculia. Um, most special education trained teachers really don't have the in-depth working knowledge of that. Um, and again, institutions have to do more to create badges or certificates beyond the basic 
certification to teach so that they can come back and get those extra credentials, training, whatever you want to call it, uh, not just, you know, uh, six credits every five years and whatever they want to take that may or may not be applicable to their own growth and needs to be better teachers. I have one thing. So I've worked in probably close, I'm trying to make it short, 20 or so of all these schools, and I'm currently at a turnaround school. And the difference that I see when it comes down to is resources. We're funded by an external grant called 100% project. And on a day-to-day -day basis, students aren't being accommodated because teachers and schools are overwhelmed by just the influx of problems that you see. You see everything in classroom, every social issue you can imagine, especially like Baltimore City. So teachers aren't even equipped to um, accommodate children who have special education because there's special education needs because there's so many other needs as well. And I see just from my personal experience that resources make a difference because um, the school I'm at right now, um, it's a turnaround school, it's been three years in turnaround, but as far as the day-to-day -day management, because we have extra staff, because we have funding for um, extracurricular activities, after-school activities, it changes the whole culture. And you cannot change the data without changing the culture. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you. And this obviously isn't the end of the conversation, um, but I want to be mindful of everyone's time. So I certainly encourage everyone to be in contact. And thank you, Buzzy and Erica, for sharing your time tonight and talking about this important issue. Uh, Buzzy's book is in the hallway from the Ivy Bookshop. And thank you all for spending, and he will be signing books in the hallway as well. So if you want to keep chatting, um, we're just shifting our location. So thank you all also for spending your evening with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.